Hey there, welcome to episode 50 of Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host of Money Never Sleeps, along with Owen Fitzgerald, who took the mic solo this week for an onstage chat with Pascal Bouvier as part of the Natty Finn Accelerator week's worth of activities and events in Dublin. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialist, Top Tier Recruitment. You're a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company. We highly recommend you have a chat with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. In this episode, Owen talks to Pascal Bouvier, managing partner at Middlegame Ventures, a venture capital firm focused exclusively on early-stage fintech startups, and Pascal is also one of the leading voices in fintech on both sides of the Atlantic. First time I read about the kinds of tech companies that Middlegame Ventures believed in, I got very excited, as their focus is smack down in the middle of my sweet spot, but more to come on that in the coming weeks. Pascal sat down with Owen this week in front of a full house at a Natty Finn Accelerator event at the brand new offices of the Banking and Payments Federation in Ireland on Molesworth Street in Dublin. I missed the gig, but our soundman Conan Brophy recorded the chat so that I and all of you out there in podcast land can get to know Pascal and his modus operandi right here on episode 50 of Money Never Sleeps. Pascal, actually, we were chatting this morning. Um, and I actually was in the audience. It was three years ago now. You were in. You gave a talk over here in the NDRC, uh, and that was the first time I actually had the pleasure of meeting you and uh, listening to you speak in person. I'm obviously an active follower, as many of us are on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, of all the stuff that you put out. Thank you. It's always, always interesting. Um, can I ask the last? Like I said, the last time you were here. So, just as an aside, I remember that that time three years ago, and it was at the NDRC. Yeah. It was a pre-accelerator. I was invited yeah. by the Bank of Ireland uh, to speak. And uh, I introduced myself in a very fateful way by saying, you know, if that gentleman Donald Trump wins the presidency, I'm probably going to move, you know, and, and spend more of my time in, uh, in Europe. <laughs> and I had a big rise out of that. A lot of people were laughing. So if I were an imprudent man, I would say, you know, if Trump gets reelected, because we're <laughs> in the process of uh, of the presidential election cycle, yeah, maybe I'm going to get the Irish residency. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm not imprudent, so I'm not going to say that. Of course not. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were here, or you spoke in Dublin a couple of years ago, and at the time you were talking about the second wave of fintech, um, and I, I suppose it was more things moving towards collaboration. Would you say now, based on what's happened in the last three years, that we're on maybe what the third wave? Oh, probably the fourth, the fifth, or the uh, uh, or the sixth, if I remember uh, correctly. Right, uh, I was referring to a uh, a second wave, or maybe at that time a third wave. Uh, given that the first wave uh, was all about direct to consumer disruption, uh, mostly coming from the Silicon Valley or emanating from the Silicon Valley, and copied in uh, in various geographies, and it was obvious that at the time uh, that wave had somewhat failed to disrupt uh, large financial institutions and, and incumbents. Um, and as a result, a lot of startups that had raised uh, uh, capital in order to survive were pivoting to collaborating rather than competing, right? Uh, so B2B pivots and uh, B2B2C uh, pivots and helping banks, insurers, asset managers to digitize uh, themselves. Um, I think we're definitely past uh, uh, this uh, uh, that pivot and that wave. 
Um, and it, it might be surprising, but I was actually with my partners, Michael and, uh, and Patrick, who are on the side. Uh, I was uh, talking about that earlier today, right? It, it feels that we've gone through like uh, a major hype, like the Gartner hype cycle, a major hype of like, you know, everything fintech and uh, disruption uh, everywhere and banks are going to quote unquote die. And after the banks die, that's going to be the insurers and so on and so forth. That didn't happen. And we had a kind of a trough of disillusionment. Um, because there was not that much that, uh, traction. And it feels and it seems that uh, large financial institutions are uh, very, you know, uh, uh, certain that uh, they are going to survive yet another day. But to me, right, observing uh, the various things that are happening in different markets, it does feel that there is starting to be some type of disruption. It's very slow, right? We're dealing with money. We're not dealing with... Uh, the pictures that we are uh, sharing on the on Facebook, and it seems that it's we're very liberal with that. Uh, the psychology of uh, money is very very different, but there seems to be you know some type of change that is taking at a hold, and none other than in the payments at the industry. You have uh, a plethora of payment initiatives of different ways of paying, whether it's direct to consumer for you know retail individuals, uh, or for uh, SMEs or for uh, uh, corporates. So you know, a Cambrian explosions, uh, uh, explosion of different types of uh, uh, payments and means of uh, payments, and then there's an explosion of uh, currencies. Right, we're dealing uh, with a world uh, of like one fiat currency per country, and now we have potentially central banks that may issue a different type of digital currency. Uh, you have commercial banks that may issue their uh, uh, currencies, and they do so in the uh, in the normal course of uh, of credit. You have companies that are going to uh, issue their currencies, i.e. Facebook. You may have communities that, that, uh, that do so. So like an explosion of currencies as well as an explosion of, uh, uh, of payment uh, uh, means. And to me, that means, you know, we have a lot of choices. And, and then there's going to be middleware that builds on that and, you know, and glues everything uh, together whereby it feels like large financial institutions, you know, may seed a certain market power with regards to uh, payments, and the activity of payments will take place outside of large banks. That's a potential future, and I'm starting to see this. And that would be like a major, major disruption and major change. And do you see, so even though we've come from maybe the second wave to you know, the fourth or fifth, we're still early in the cycle because, you know, I know that the thesis for middle game is around a lot of the innovation happening in the back office. So you yes. see innovation, you know, in the direct-to-consumer space, but actually the more innovation that happens in the background for financial services will potentially drive even more innovation at the front yes, end. Yes, for sure, right. So we're, we're, we're seeing more and more solutions being built uh, off of, like, you know, the middle office or the, uh, or the back office, middleware and, uh, and back end. And that's actually necessary, those B2B solutions to upgrade infrastructure, to upgrade standards, you know, are necessary for like any type of uh, direct-to-consumer uh, 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 disruption, and that's indeed where we are uh, focusing most of uh, most of our time because it's probably less risky for us. We're probably uh, you know more comfortable with the B two B solutions uh, builders as opposed to direct-to-consumer uh, uh, builders. Um, and again, right, a necessary upgrade of infrastructure for. 
uh, an industry that uh, globally is anywhere between 15 and 17 percent of that uh, GDP, depending on uh, where you know the global economy is. So that's like trillions and trillions of uh, dollars, and it takes time. It's not something that you're going to do uh, within a couple of years, even within five or six years. You know, our thesis. Uh, and uh, you know, our uh, investment activity is over the next 20 years or so. Um, and you mentioned payments and like the future of payments, and there were some even interesting announcements this week. You know, Amazon coming out with a credit card or a card aimed at building the credit scores of customers, and then you had Alipay, I think, announced that it had six European partners. So, and Apple. An Apple, sorry, an Apple the, card. The Apple well. card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, where do you see, or I suppose, where do you see payments, and how do you see those players and non-financial services uh, companies playing or having a large role in that space? Right. It's obvious that uh, those big tech companies uh, are nibbling, uh, you know, and trying to take market share uh, of different types of financial services and products. None more so than in that uh, in, in payments. So, I. Um, I always uh, try to go through like an exercise of uh, how a particular market and market structure will be in, uh, let's say, 15 years or 20 years as like a focal point, right? And so for payments, my focal point is a digital wallet that everyone is going to have, off of which uh, you will pay, transact, make micro-investments, have all your assets uh, off of off of your smartphone, or maybe it's a different medium. It's like uh, your watch. I, I don't know actually what the hardware medium is. But that digital wallet that allows you to choose on the fly any type of uh, payment that is offered to you if you go to a retail store, if you know, you're buying something, or if you're uh, online, or if you're a, a business and you're trying to you know, uh, procure a, a, a service. From a payment perspective, that's fairly liberating, right? You have a store value, and then you have the ability through middleware and connectivity of like choosing anything um, that is offered to you in terms of like how to pay. And then the digital wallet will hold any type of currency, whether it's a fiat currency or whether it's a cryptocurrency, if you're so inclined, or whether it's like a private currency, if it's like a, a, a Facebook. And so it's storing all these things, and you have, you're not only choosing um, how to pay, but you're choosing with what to pay. And then you may also have, you know, assets that are not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, presented for the immediacy of, uh, of paying something or agencing something, but it might be, uh, and it, it might be. So that's very liberating because it means uh, you're in control, right, of that part of your deposits or of your net worth that is used on a, on a regular and, a, and daily basis. I think that's a fairly profound paradigm. Because right now, the paradigm that we're used to and that may be changing, that's kind of like the thesis that I'm trying to uh, uh, flesh out for you, is uh, that store value for most of our deposits throughout the, the year, right, is the checking account uh, at, a, at a retail bank, right? It's not very dynamic. Um, it actually is protected, thank God for us, because it's very safe. But it's not very dynamic in terms of uh, what we can do with it. So it would seem to me that, uh, one, we're moving towards that. Two, uh, banks need to uh, seize that moment 
and try to upgrade themselves in the customer experience and the flexibility uh, to you know, allow their uh, clients to transact in every which way. And three, if banks do not do that, then you're going to have, to your point, big tech companies that seem to be uh, innovating at the speed of light when it comes to financial services. Uh, if anyone has seen you know, the announcement uh, that Apple has put out with the Apple Card uh, in partnership with the, with the Goldman Sachs, I think that's a bit of a paradigm change, uh, potentially, right? that could have a big, big impact on how we view payments and how uh, we view a wallet uh, and how that wallet is being used uh, on a daily basis. And do you think in the future or in the near future, it'll be a case that everyone there is one home, so it's, whether it's like a WeChat sort of model whereby everything is within one app, whether it's connected through ah. the likes of open banking, or would there be one place that you go to get the majority of it? If it's either your bank account or your bank app, that's your primary wallet, or will it be a tech company? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the connect- connectivity is way more important, you know, being able to move in and out of uh, various ecosystems as opposed to be, you know, uh, beholden to, uh, to, to one. Uh, you mentioned at the WeChat, that's like a very different universe, right? Born out of uh, a regulatory regime, uh, a way of managing data, and a way of circumventing, uh, you know, existing financial infrastructure, or uh, circumventing like almost an existent uh, financial infrastructure that we're not used to. I mean, it's like the world of uh, China, and I'm not sure that uh, the uh, industrialized world, whether it's the U.S. or uh, or Europe, uh, would move at, uh, towards that. I th- I'm I'm questioning at the, that, and as much as it feels that uh, there's been a switch in, uh, you know. Um, Sentiment towards uh, some somewhat a negative stance with regards to big tech, uh, and somewhat a po- positive stance uh, towards uh, uh, privacy, uh, and that you know the the, the WeChat example uh, means there's very very little privacy, yeah. uh, uh, there is very little protection uh, of uh, individuals. It doesn't feel that you know it's in our European or uh, uh, United States culture to to move towards that. I might be wrong, but. Maybe Facebook is uh, could be that equivalent. Do you think? It might I think that they have a uh, or uh, Facebook has an uphill battle yeah. uh, with regards to all the things that they have done with with our data. Actually, I don't have a Facebook account at the, anymore. But uh, yeah, it feels that uh, the heat is being put on uh, these big tech models that are advertising at the driven, uh, and that might mean that uh, you know they would cede uh, power to other at the giants. Maybe banks will seize the day, right? Banks were like uh, afraid of a uh, uh, big tech and all the initiatives in financial services, and all of a sudden there's like a sentiment shift uh, against big tech, and that that might uh, net net, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, be a, a benefit to, to banks. And do you think? Because obviously the challenge with from the bank point of view is that as much as they're looking to uh, engage with fintechs, as many of them are failing. I think uh, Fin this week was with yeah. Goldman Sachs that that didn't work out, but it was seen more as a channel as opposed to a wider kind of cultural focus versus the Marcus kind of model whereby, you know, they've built up a couple of billion of deposits alone over the first 18 months. So is it, a, it needs to be a top level view to, uh, to re-engage oh. with the fintechs or? Are yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think like innovation and change in financial services has very little to do with technology and it has uh, all to do with the uh, culture and governance and, uh, and intent. So it's, that, it's a perfect example, right? Like the J.P. Morgan approach and the Goldman Sachs approach 
uh, in the United States are very, very different in terms of what they want to achieve from a digitization point of view. And I, we don't have like direct evidence, but it feels like the branch network of J.P. Morgan Chase won that battle, <laughs> either implicitly or explicitly. And at, uh, Fin, which is a pure digital at, uh, 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 banking app, lost. Right. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, you know when that was announced, there was also a doubling down on we really uh, are gung ho on our uh, branch network and we'll open more branches and so on and so forth. It's like compared to Goldman Sachs that went all in abstracted their pure digital offering outside of Goldman Sachs, hired uh, marketing people, advertising people to kind of build a business from the ground up without any type of interference from the mothership. That's like, there's like a cultural design that says we want to completely reinvent ourselves uh, instead of like tinkering at the edges uh, to kind of augment what we uh, already have. And I would say that there are few banks in the world that you know have that Goldman Sachs approach. Um, there's the DBS in Singapore uh, that is very very good at uh, digitization, and they're quite advanced in their uh, in their markets. If you look at the DBS's uh, annual shareholder uh, uh, report, and that has been the case for the past six years or so, you have actually pure digital KPIs that they compare to like uh, you know physical branch uh, KPIs. So a digital customer, you know, has this type of ROI, and there's this type of cost of acquisition, and uh, it's much better than like the traditional customers. That approach is like fundamentally different. Um, in Europe, you know, I think I would say that ING and uh, and BBVA to a certain extent uh, uh, are, are quite advanced. Goldman Sachs, obviously, in the uh, in the U.S., a couple of other smaller institutions, but you know, comes from the top for sure. And you were talking earlier about, or when you were doing the introduction about currencies and fiat currencies and ah. global currencies. Where are your yes. thoughts on the future of money, I suppose, over the next couple of years? That's a trap question. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do believe that we're, we're going to have a multiplicity of, uh, of currencies available to, uh, the, to us. I mean, you know, Facebook, Facebook is uh, just uh, one example. It's so... Uh, Cheap and easy to uh, uh, to craft a, a new type of you know digital uh, uh, currency these days. Uh, that uh, and then the the, the you know the, the border the, or the line between what is a cryptocurrency or a digital currency and what is a crypto asset is kind of thin. I don't think it's it's still moving, and I don't think it's been uh, defined. So having all kinds of you know tokens or uh, representation of a something of value, right? Whether it is fairly liquid or whether it is less liquid, uh, is going to come towards us, right? How uh, assets and and how monies are represented and are issued and then are managed, used, invested with and serviced is going to change. And I think that's a major major paradigm. It touches on capital markets. It touches on asset management, and obviously, you know, day-to-day -day payments and clearing and settlement of whatever we buy uh, to ingest or we invest to uh, to hold. And probably that's a that's a theme that uh, not many people fully understand, right? Because we've been so focused on lending, 
and robo-advisory and uh, savings and some uh, directives, i.e., you know, what PSD2 and GDPR are going to do to the financial services industry, that we uh, haven't spent enough time on the capital markets industry and the asset management industry, the sell side and the uh, buy side, the issuance and the servicing and the managing of all these assets that we have. Some are like physical assets. Some are really advanced assets like, uh, you know, Apple stock, which is uh, uh, fully traded and electronic and so on and so forth. But others are very, very, um, you know, illiquid or um, not efficiently issued at at all. Uh, and that will have profound uh, impacts on uh, on everything that uh, that we do. When I mentioned, uh, you know, you'll have a digital wallet. That digital wallet may have a lot of uh, uh, assets uh, uh, that you'll you know be controlling at your uh, fingertips. Right? That's kind of like an uh, an interesting uh, focal point to uh, uh, to mentalize, as opposed to all the assets that you have are kind of like balkanized and and you know reside in in different repositories with different custodians and, and so on and so forth. Because to me it would seem like, you know, from a practical point of view, it is easier to see a world whereby there's tokenization around assets as opposed to digital or cryptocurrency and we're all using that. You know, yeah. It's an easier leap in my brain, I suppose, to make to digital and tokenization of assets and asset classes than global currency, digital currency, and the challenges that would be around trying to bring that in. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, I think that the you know tokenized securities, i.e., adding some type of cryptography or automation or code to uh, an asset that we're familiar with, right? An equity, a bond, some real estate, and these are like evolutionary baby steps, and it's fairly easy to to kind of uh, envision that uh, that path, that that, that evolutionary path. Uh, to think about uh, pure digital tokens that are endogenous to a specific protocol, right? Whether they're assets or whether they're uh, currencies, that's that's more science fiction-ish. <laughs> it's kind of like more difficult uh, to think that it's going to be, you know, with us at, uh, tomorrow. It may or it may not. You know, interestingly enough, um, there is a startup that uh, Michael and I invested in with a previous fund. Um, based out of uh, London called, called Clearmatics. I don't know if uh, uh, some of you have heard of Clearmatics. Um, but they are working on a um, stable coin, right? That's a dirty word. Right? <laughs> um, that is backed by central bank reserves, right? Bank of England reserves. Wholesale stable coin that will allow for netting and uh, grossing, you know, basically clearing and, and settlement of uh, uh, payments and change of and transfer of value between large commercial banks and the central bank, uh, the Bank of England. That's fairly revolutionary, right? The uh, the, the famous uh, the venture capitalist in the Silicon Valley, right, uh, said software is eating the world, right? To think that software is actually eating a currency and that a, a, a currency, uh, uh, be it a, a wholesale currency, is going to uh, acquire some type of programmatic uh, quality, right, with some code, uh, so that more is being done with it and with its uh, representation between various actors. That's a paradigm shift, right? Uh, and it probably is the first step towards having, you know, that being unleashed on, on us poor and suspecting uh, retail clients. 
Uh, that probably is, uh, uh, you know, uh, further along in the uh, future, if it would ever come to that. And let's talk about an area that gets a lot of, I suppose, more than the average amount of focus uh, in terms of fintechs is around the kind of challenger banking space. I was at Money 2020 last week, and they had back-to-back talks from um, WeChat. And actually, the really interesting one from, was from the CEO of Kakao, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, is a, large, is a digital bank in South Korea. And they've talked about in the last two years, they're now, they've now turned profitable after their seventh quarter in operation. But they have uh, 9 million customers, but they have 15 billion on deposit. You know, which is un- incredibly unusual for challenger banking space, I suppose. How do you see that play out with, from a European context in terms of some of the, the big names that are out there and how is that going to look in a couple of years' time? Yeah, um, it's a good point. So uh, remember what I said earlier, right? It felt that we were disillusioned with uh, any type of fintech disruption. It was not happening. And, and then, you know, there's kind of hope, that at least from what I see. There's things that are happening. Those challenger banks are like the perfect uh, example, right? So there are several in, the, in Europe that are now claiming, you know, million or over a million uh, clients. I think Monzo is past two million, uh, now, past two million but they're like signing 60,000 clients uh, a week. I don't want to misquote. It's something that I uh, read recently. I mean, that's quite staggering. Uh, and I would say that that's a movement that is not limited to challenger banks per se, i.e. startups that are banks that, are got, that got a, um, a banking license, right? You have many other uh, services, apps that started and unbundled one particular piece of uh, a bank offering, right? And are, are now rebundling and trying to, by regulatory arbitrage or skirting, you know, bank licenses, um, trying to deliver uh, all kinds of bank services that uh, that a bank, a traditional bank, would uh, um, would offer. So, a couple of examples: like Robinhood, which is a you know brokerage trading app in the U.S., is is a perfect example. I think Raisin here, that is yep. not necessarily a challenger bank, you know, started with like basically deposit deposit brokerage as a marketplace, is adding at the services. So, all of these, you know. Startups that have reached a successful or like enough scale in terms of like way more than like a couple of hundred thousand uh, clients, and are thinking about like okay, let me add um, product or service number two, three, four, five, six, right? So a lot of challenger banks with licenses, a lot of startups that don't have licenses and are perfectly happy with that because that's their strate- strategic uh, choice, but all of them. You know, uh, are uh, are nibbling and taking uh, uh, market share from uh, the traditional uh, banking system. So I'm, I'm, I was not positive at first because I thought that uh, these businesses would be really capital intensive. The cost of acquisition would uh, eat at them, uh, and I'm starting to turn around and to, to the point and 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 the venture point where you know, there's something there. Uh, there is. Um, I didn't uh, uh, coin this. I wish I did. Uh, there's a uh, analyst and consultant in the fintech uh, world uh, in the United States that uh, did so uh, quite brilliantly. Uh, he coined uh, the term deposit displacement. Right. So more and more of us in the aggregate in various countries um, are uh, placing uh, the monies that used to end up in our checking account, a traditional primary checking account in a variety of apps, 
whether it's uh, you know the Starbucks app so that or the Nero app uh, so that uh, we're able to buy our coffee uh, every day, whether it's the Robinhood app in the U.S. or like the equivalent in the, uh, in Europe, whether it's a var- var- uh, Amazon with their re- reloadable uh, card is a perfect example. So there is less monies that are staying in traditional checking accounts, and these monies are staying less you know, uh, time in that checking account. And it's been displaced either before hitting the checking account or after hitting the checking account with a variety of uh, apps. I think that that also has a profound impact. And I would I would say that it's part directionally so of, you know, what challenger banks are uh, trying to do. But uh, you mentioned deposits there. That actually has a bigger impact in some ways than, you know, losing market share for a bank then because actually losing the deposits, whether they're going to a challenger bank or to a Robinhood and to a Starbucks account and all of the others has a more profound effect possibly on a bank then? I would say so, yeah. I, I think that the deposit placement, I mean, the checking account is the nexus, whether it's a wholesale checking account or, and you call it differently, or if it's a retail checking account, right? That's, uh, that is the cornerstone of uh, what builds a, uh, a banking business. So if a bank you know, loses some type of power and everything is relative. It's not like tomorrow there's like a complete loss of uh, control, right? But, you know, uh, relatively speaking, if you lose a little bit of that control, whether it's on the monies that go through the account or whether, more importantly, it's, you know, the data that is embedded data that is associated with that account, then uh, strategically speaking, you're ceding power to uh, either new entrants, be they like uh, pure startups, New entrants, be they you know big tech uh, uh, companies, and that that long term, that's not a strategic position that you uh, want to be in. And do you think it'll lead to even more acquisitions or partnerships? I would imagine it'll have to because you know, uh, who acquires whom? Well, who I suppose the question is who wants to acquire whom? Because yeah. I would imagine that the easier solution is the bank buying the the fintech, but because the fintech doesn't want to necessarily go the other way and have to acquire the bank and the license and all the regulatory challenges. Sure. But, I mean, there's a lot of, there's very high valuations on a lot of those companies as well. They're not an easy acquisition. Uh, I, well, yeah, so I uh, definitively so. I, I don't think that I can uh, answer this. I think that there's like different scenarios that may or may not uh, happen and you have to ascribe certain probabilities to these scenarios. So like a number one scenario is like, you know, uh, things lead to uh, most banks becoming uh, utility pipes and utilities, right? And they see the distribution and the power that they have through the distribution to someone else. Not that they wanted to, but, you know, one thing leads to another, uh, one strategic error after another, and then it happens. Uh, which means that uh, the return on the, uh, on capital and the, uh, equity of uh, most banks will stay uh, as low as uh, it has been since the 2008-2009 uh, crisis. That's a potentially a scenario that uh, could be uh, played out. Um, and another one uh, could be, well, you know, uh, big tech fails just because there are so many societal uh, issues and there's a backlash from a legislative point of view. Uh, and so banks, relatively speaking, will get back at the market power and be able to either acquire the assets that they need to um, to compete effectively in the in the digital world. That's a second uh, scenario, uh, I would say. How to game probability-wise these, I think that your bet is uh, uh, as best uh, uh, as mine right now. <laughs> I'm conscious uh, we have you here, so I'd, I'd like to put it out to some questions, if anyone has any. I'll get the opportunity to ask you. Richard? Hi. Um, a lot of talk of the challenger to banks coming from big tech. Yeah. 
But would you not see, given things like trust issues, are the real threat to banks, not other banks? Other banks actually learning the tricks of the bigger tech and more nimble, and then them feeding into existing banks? Yeah, well, certainly so. I think that, uh, you know, so, someone said uh, very aptly, actually, right? Uh, uh, I think it's a, a fintech consultancy in the, uh, in the UK, right? It's only 1% uh, of the digitization or the disruption has happened in, uh, uh, in the financial services industry, i.e. there's like so much more uh, um, uh, to happen. And then someone else that I know said, yeah, that's, that may be true, but like 30% of the time has elapsed already, which means that that 1% of like progress is extremely unevenly distributed. And I mentioned, you know, various banks, BBVA, ING, Goldman, DBS. Uh, there's like a smaller outfit in the U.S. called uh, USAA that uh, I think is very good at digitization. There's ob obviously Capital One. There's probably a couple of uh, the other examples in, the, in Europe. These are the ones that, uh, you know, given that they're ahead and assuming that uh, they will continue remaining ahead if they don't make any strategic mistakes are the ones that, uh, that will have the potential to either acquire other, you know, uh, weaker competitors or, or survive by just gaining organically uh, market share. So that's uh, very, very, very true. On top of that, it seems to me that there are certain types of legislations as well as you know the regulatory framework that everyone uh, works under that um, usually benefits uh, already large institutions, right? So um, what legislators and regulators want, i.e. a market structure that is a little more even, uh, with like mid-market uh, 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 firms uh, to make, you know, for a competitive landscape that is healthy uh, might not happen and you may have like more market concentration. And that market concentration will flow towards those uh, banks or asset managers or insurers that uh, were able to seize the day earlier than their, uh, than their brethren. So I, I would agree. Anyone else? Yes. Let's go to questions. Um, first of all, interesting. When is my fridge going to be hooked into my digital wallet so I can see when it's paying for my wine? Um, and then in terms of security solutions, when are we going to start seeing innovation in terms of security? Because really, let's say all these innovations with respect to payments or you know uh, consolidation of all these things, we really need to see um, security solutions that are on a par with cybercrime to actually sure. make sure. And um, to your first question, I was about to say never. And then you, and then you said wine. So I said, <laughs> I hope tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, gosh, like the yeah. Uh, I mean, the, your second question is related to your first question, right? The Internet of, uh, of Things is uh, completely. I mean, that universe is completely uh, insecure. So I certainly hope that uh, none of the stuff in all of our collective houses will be connected to the internet because that's like a complete nightmare. I don't know who has like a Alexa in their homes or their you know. Please disconnect it immediately. <laughs> I mean, come on. Or like your, you know, fire alarm or smoke detector. I, that that frightens me to uh, to no end. To the second one, I'm going to plead ignorance. It, uh, the security, cybersecurity uh, aspect, or at least that universe is uh, a universe that uh, we know less. So I'm not sure that I would be able to uh, to give you a uh, an appropriate answer. Yes. Yes. What what advice would you give to startups in the fintech space? To that is different to the advice you might give to startups in like in other sectors. I guess I've seen startups trying to sell. I would say your runway should be 36 months, not 18 months, for example. What other kind of pieces of advice would you give to 
Uh, I guess some of the guys here, but also... Right, right, right. So the, uh, well, obviously fintech is a portmanteau uh, word. There's the fin and the tech. And some startups are more tech than fin, and the others are more fin than tech. But very few really have a good understanding of uh, regulation and compliance. Uh, and I mean that in two ways, right? Either regulation and compliance impacts them directly, or it impacts uh, the customers that they're trying to sell to. Either way, it's extremely important, and I don't think that uh, enough uh, attention is uh, paid to, uh, to these things. Because uh, let's assume that you know, you're not regulated, uh, you don't need to be compliant, but the bank that you're selling to uh, is, right? If you don't really understand how the bank operates, it's going to be very difficult for you to sell to that bank in the, in the right way and, and, and to please them as a, as a customer. So that probably would be uh, my number one thing. Every other aspect that I would uh, uh, tell an entrepreneur to, to look at is probably not specific to fintech uh, per se, but the regulation uh, and compliance aspect, uh, most definitely. Hi, Pascal, Joe McCann. Just touching uh, further on uh, regulation, what about the fragmented global regulatory landscape? Will that act as a bit of a challenge for the you know, tech yeah. Do I have permission from my partners to be uh, really science fiction-ish? All right. The floor is yours. <laughs> um, I uh, have an uh, undebated uh, thesis uh, that says that we're moving, potentially moving towards a balkanized uh, and fragmented uh, global uh, financial uh, system. Right, uh, whereby you know uh, the kind of friction that we're seeing between the U.S. and China may not be temporary; it might be something that is longer term, and it would be easy to figure out that uh, we may have like a U.S. and U.S. dollar-driven uh, financial system, and the U.N. and uh, and and China-driven uh, financial system with their you know uh, separate uh, infrastructures. I don't know where the EU would uh, fit uh, in there. Um, and the reason being, you know, these become uh, geopolitical uh, issues really, really fast. And if that happens, we're going to have, you know, um, a more permanent uh, balkanization of, uh, of financial systems, which means that uh, regulation uh, won't tend towards more harmonization between the, these uh, the different blocks. So I, I think that it's not complete science fiction to think in that uh, in these terms and to kind of like prepare i.e. if you're you know selling to different uh, uh, global markets you have to think about adapting your technology solution so that it fits the these different markets whether it's privacy whether it's like connectivity with apis whether it's uh, where your technology resides and what type of uh, uh, you know cloud infrastructure uh, all these uh, may, 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 may make the life of uh, fintech service providers that try to be global uh, more difficult. And financial institutions too. Think of a financial institution that has uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, commercial interests in, uh, uh, in Europe or in the US and also in uh, uh, Southeast Asia or China. If uh, things don't you know, go towards more peaceful harmonization, you're going to have to have life choices. Yes. Hi. In the context of China, if you look at Tencent and Financial, they've come to command almost 90% of the market share of mobile payments. We haven't really seen that model in the US, and I was wondering why is that the case? I mean, if you look in the context of the top 10 global banks in terms of capitalization, 
at least three of them are Chinese, and they barely own any of that you know, transaction. Sure. But in the U.S., that model hasn't been replicated, given the fact that U.S. is, quote-unquote, technologically more advanced. Uh, I'm just intrigued why the disconnect where China led it, but the U.S. is nowhere close to that. Yeah, that, uh, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer, I would say, right? There's like, a, there's probably political intent. Uh, I mean, you know, the... Chinese Communist Party, which essentially is the government, has that an intent on you know building uh, giants, and uh, helping from a regulatory uh, standpoint might be one explanation. Uh, another explanation might be uh, you know the U.S. is so driven by credit, and there's like such you know a legacy infrastructure for credit, and credit uh, impacts uh, payments. That's very difficult to dislodge this with like, a, you know, instantaneous new generation of uh, uh, payment apps that uh, take on close to 90% of the uh, of the market with like new technologies, i.e. Uh, QR codes. Uh, and so I, I think that there are like legacy technology issues, cultural issues, and then political issues that would explain that. We actually, we actually have to cut it there uh, okay. on direct questions. But I just want to say thank you. For your thank time. you. As always, thank it's you always everyone. interesting. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks to Pascal for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting or retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, get in touch with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com. To learn more about Pascal and Middle Game Ventures, you can check them out on middlegamevc.com or follow Pascal Bouvier on Twitter. That's P-A-S-C-A-L-B-O-U-V-I-E-R. I could spell, folks. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Money Never Sleeps on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. You can also subscribe via our website to channels like Spotify and Stitcher. So just go to the subscribe page on moneyneversleeps.ie and follow the links. If you're searching directly on iTunes or Spotify, Money Never Sleeps is spelled as all one word. For more info and links, check out the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie. You can drop us a line on info at moneyneversleeps.ie or at MNS Show on Twitter. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. DM me on Twitter at Pete Townsend NV if you want to know more. And you can follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald 9. Finally, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for recording and editing this podcast. Till next time, thanks for listening. See ya. Money never sleeps, pal.